The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. What, uh, what I'd like for you to do is um, just take a look at your outlines and you can see what I'm up to here. I, I've, uh, I've quoted Robert Latham, The Work of Christ. I found the chapter in his book uh, on the work of Christ. There's a chapter in there on union with Christ, real helpful. And then there's um, a, uh, another quote from him under point three where he is taking what Calvin is saying, and then I have, actually have a final quote from Calvin in uh, point four. But here's, here's kind of the big picture. Um, um, point one, we're in a relationship with the living God. What metaphors does the Bible use to help us understand this relationship? Secondly, the metaphor of marriage is one, one prominent way the Bible describes what it means to be in a relationship with God. Uh, thirdly, how does this particular metaphor of marriage that I want to unpack tonight assist us as we think about the application of redemption um, in our daily lives? And then uh, point four, what does this look like in daily lives, a vertical reorientation? So that, that's kind of where we're going. Maybe, um, maybe I'll just start with uh, praying together. Why don't we, why don't we pray? Father, when we think about the gospel, uh, we're thinking about union with Christ. We're not just thinking about one aspect of our redemption. We're thinking about the entire package. Uh, In fact, when we talk about union with Christ, we are um, and should be at some point overwhelmed that it's not just one gift. It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight aspects of grace that we enjoy. And Father, our, our prayer tonight as we build on what uh, Dr. Gaffin has uh, talked about, as we build on what uh, Dr. Enns has talked about, that Father, we would move even further down that path of uh, application to our own lives, and uh, tonight particularly, but then next week as we think about how union with Christ impacts and changes the way that we relate to one another in the body of Christ. So would you... Um, can we ask you, will, will you send your spirit and, and work in our midst? Um, Holy Spirit, come and do what you've been sent to do to, to magnify and glorify Christ, to help us see uh, more clearly uh, just how glorious and beautiful and amazing he is and what you, Father, Son, and Spirit have done in our behalf so that um, when we leave tonight, there would be a sense of your work in our lives. Uh, your gracious work in our lives to make us different people. Um, will you do that for Jesus' sake? Amen. Good. Um, I, I usually do PowerPoint, but I'm less high tech tonight. Let me um, let me kind of show you the kind of some of the basics that I'm working on as I think about. Um, 
union with Christ. Um, redemption, really setting right what the fall ruined. And if you, if you look at uh, the fall, what has happened is uh, the first two commands have been turned upside down on their head. So the first commandment, commandment to, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, this becomes, after the fall, secondary, if that. And then the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, becomes primary. And uh, as a result, uh, this is the way I put it, when the first and second great commands are turned on their heads, then uh, we make something in creation ultimate at the expense of the Creator. And when we worship something in creation, we ourselves become subhuman and we ultimately demean the very thing we worship. See that? Uh, when I make something in creation primary, I become less than human because this vertical orientation, which is to be primary, has been uh, uh, subverted by sin. I become subhuman, and then when I make something in creation primary, I end up demeaning the value and uh, importance of that thing in creation because I make it something it was never intended to be. Um, um, well, I, the, the, moment, the moment we, uh, we err in terms of our worship, when we're not worshiping rightly, worshiping the living God, we choose to worship something else. We, we're, we're making covenants with something other than the living God. And the moment we do that, then we become less than what God intended us to be, to be people who worship and submit and honor and glorify and obey Him. Uh, and I'll unpack this a little bit more. i got a couple of good Lewis quotes. Um, here's what, here's what uh, Lewis says. He says, um, As fallen people, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Okay? We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an, infinite like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. So what Lewis is saying is that very thing. We, take, we make something in creation ultimate. And... Um, and we're, we're like ignorant children. We're satisfied with playing in the mud when our parents are saying, look, I'd like to take you to the shore or the beach, as we call it, where I come from. Um, and and we're, we're far too easily satisfied. Then, then he says this, and this is, this, is the, uh, this is getting at what union with Christ is addressing. Or redemption. Same, same axes, but what we're wanting to do is we're, make, we're wanting to make the first commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength 
the first commandment. Make it primary. And the second great commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, to make that secondary. So that we're loving God first and loving neighbor. And if we, if we don't have that order in that way, we wind up doing what we do over here. And here, here's how Lewis, C.S. Lewis talks about uh, getting the, the order of the loves uh, in, their, in their proper uh, order. He says this, uh, he's talking about marriage. When I have learned to love God better than my wife, I shall love my wife better than I do now. Maybe I should say, when I learn to love God better than my husband, uh, I shall love my husband better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my wife or husband at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall not love my husband or my wife at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed but increased. Right, you follow that? Follow the Lewis's line of thinking? When I, when I have first things first, when God is primary, when this vertical orientation is primary, when I'm, uh, by virtue of redemption, reoriented vertically, the second great commandment and enjoying the good things that God has given me in creation, whether it be marriage, whether it be children, whether it be... Uh, a temporal uh, pleasure like a good meal or uh, a, a beautiful sunrise or sunset, those things aren't suppressed when I make God primary. They're increased. I enjoy them in the way that they were intended to be enjoyed. Okay? And I think what, what, I'm, what I'm going to do tonight and next week is to show how union with Christ, redemption, reorients us vertically and horizontally. Uh, I think that at the end of the day is the application of union with Christ. Um, you, let me tell you this. You cannot, you cannot afford to not understand union with Christ in pastoral ministry. If you don't, you're toast. Because that's the issue at play. When you preach, when you counsel, when you pastor, when you equip, union with Christ getting people to reorient vertically so that they're, they're reorienting horizontally. Um, I, can't, I can't survive across the street at CCF without continually thinking about and growing in my own application and understanding of union with Christ, and my own ability to make that understandable and, and, and real for the people that I'm trying to help. Okay, so you think about pastoral ministry, this is where you live and die. Okay? Um, so redemption union with Christ does what? It reverses the effects of the fall where there is this progressive vertical reorientation and horizontal reorientation. First command remains first command. Second great command remains second great command. Okay. Um, so we're in a relationship with the living God. Here's, here's the first point. That was all introductory stuff. Here's the four, first point. We're in a relationship with the living God. What metaphors does the Bible use to help us understand this relationship? And I just started thinking through scriptural, biblical metaphors that the Bible employs 
to talk about uh, and describe and help us understand what it means to be in a relationship with the living God. And I came up with uh, a number of them. Um, first of all, we're, we, uh, and it, particularly as it, as it unpacks union with Christ, the, the first one I thought about was Christ being the second Adam. Uh, uh, Christ being our federal head, our representative. And by virtue of what Christ has done as the second Adam, he restores what the first Adam failed to do and reconciles us to God. That, that's one metaphor. Um, another metaphor that is, uh, now, and, and we as Reformed folk love that one. Um, more experiential people love the, the second one here, the vine and the branches imagery that you find in John 15 through 17. It's more of an experiential, organic union relationship that I have with Christ. And uh, as I abide in Him as the vine, I become fruitful. Um, that was an, another image that stood out in, uh, in Scripture. A third one that I thought about was just the father-child relationship, the doctrine of adoption. In uh, Romans 8, Galatians 3 and 4, um, and it sounds like you guys talked a little bit about that, but, but that's a very predominant theme, particularly when you get to the uh, New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. Israel is called God's son, and of course Israel as his son fails to obey him, and it, it opens the door for what? The true Israel, the real son, Jesus, to come and fulfill what Israel failed to fulfill. But you have this, this, uh, this metaphor of father-child relationship, and it's embedded in the uh, Old Testament, and it really becomes uh, richer and richer as you get to the New Testament. The, um, the fourth one that came to mind was just the traditional ordo salutis that you find in Romans 8. Um, and it's more that logical relationship that begins with our predestination and election and effectual calling and regeneration, just those kind of classic doctrines. And that's a way of thinking about being in relationship with the living God. Uh, and it's, it's, a biblical, it's a biblical metaphor, that ordo salutis. Um, the one that, um, that I like probably most, other than the one I'm going to talk about tonight, is the fifth one here, this whole... Pauline language of being in Christ. Uh, I like the way that, um, that Paul talks about being in Christ, and you see it in, in uh, Ephesians, where we're in Christ, and we enjoy all the blessings that are a part of being in Christ. Again, those... those, those uh, Wonderful blessings of salvation, predestination, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. Um, Paul does a different take in Ephesians 1 than what he does in Romans 8. Romans 8 tends to be more linear. Um, Ephesians 1 is much more relational and it has Christ at the hub and these blessings that are connected to being in Christ as spokes of the wheel. Uh, a sixth image that you find in scriptures is just the image of baptism, uh, being united with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, or his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And you see that in Romans 6, you see it in Colossians 2, 
um, there is this uh, rich imagery of being identified with Christ in some mystical and real way. Um, and baptism, of course, uh, is emphasizing that, that identify, identification with Christ as an entry point to the Christian life. It's where, where union with Christ begins. Another one is the Lord's Supper. Read, um, read 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, and what's the language there? This, this participation in the Lord's Supper is what? An ongoing participation in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus until He comes again. So there's this identification, this union with Christ that gets worked out by faith in baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is representing that entry gate into the Christian life. The Lord's Supper is representing that ongoing need for relationship with Christ in, uh, in daily growth. Thought about um, the uh, writer of Hebrews. Christ is our high priest. Okay? Uh, he identifies with us in his humanity so that we might identify with him in his redemption. And you see the writer of Hebrews working that out, particularly in, in chapter 2, but throughout the rest of the book. Uh, a final um, one before we talk about marriage is uh, one that uh, talks about um, our identity in Christ. Being um, vital and legal. Um, when I become a Christian, I'm vitally united to Christ. That's kind of the John 15 through 17 idea that I'm personally united to Him. And um, I'm vitally united to Christ through the work of the Spirit in me, regeneration, which then is the beginning of sanctification. It's dealing with the corruption of sin, and it's emphasizing uh, Christ at work in me. All right, very personal, very intense, very relational. And the emphasis in vital union tends to be on the fact that we have a uh, resurrected Savior that He's a living Lord. And because I am in Him, I now am experiencing this new life that I share because of my, my identification and union with Him. Then the other aspect of uh, identity in Christ is our legal union with Christ. We're legally united to Christ. This is dealing with the guilt of sin. This is where you talk about... Uh, uh, this would be regeneration and sanctification... This would be focusing more on justification. Uh, Christ not in us, but Christ for us. What He does in our stead, in our place, as our vicarious substitute on the cross, atoning for our sins, giving us a righteousness that's not ours. And uh, typically the focus here is on Christ's vicarious work on the cross. Um, uh, any, are there any other metaphors? How many is that? That's um, five, six, seven, eight. That's nine. 
What what else what else would you think about? Okay. Yeah, and that that would probably that would probably move in the direction of uh, king and kingdom, subjects of a new kingdom, citizens that's, of a new kingdom. Yeah, that's, that's a little more Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other one I thought of is Christ is our elder brother. We are not ashamed of Right. Yeah, and that comes out in Hebrews. By the way, uh, I, I do want to say the doctrine of adoption, it tends to be very individualistic and personal. But you, you remember in the doctrine of adoption, it's a very corporate view of the Christian life because when you're adopted by the Father, what does that mean? You get new siblings. That's right. You get a lot of... You got a lot of siblings that you get to fight with for the rest of your life until we get to heaven. You know, but there's there's a corporate dimension to the doctrine of adoption that oftentimes doesn't get unpacked. It tends to be very personal. Um, baptism and the Lord's Supper have both a personal and a corporate dimension. Baptism, Peter says on the day of Pentecost, what? Repent. There's the call, the individual call to repent. But then he says, be baptized. What are you doing when you're baptized? You're identifying with the people of God. The Lord's Supper is something that is very personal and and, uh, intensely personal as you examine your own life. But if you look at the context of 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, the Lord's Supper is participated within the context of corporate worship uh, where we're, we're, we're not just considering the literal physical body and blood of Jesus, but we're also considering the body of Christ. Um, I think Paul talks about that in First Ten, First uh, Corinthians 10. So all, all I'm doing here just at the outset is just kind of laying out different metaphors that the Bible uses to help us all get on board with what it, mean, what it means to be in relationship with Christ, okay? what it means to, to live the Christian life. Now, the one that I want to focus on um, uh, primarily is this metaphor of marriage. And talk about that a little bit and then give you some some application for why I think this is a, a good metaphor. All those other metaphors are good, all right, because they're biblical. But the metaphor of marriage, I think, is a, is a good metaphor it's uh, one of the prominent ways the Bible describes what it means to be in a relationship with God. Um, I've given you some passages here. There's Old Testament imagery. Um, maybe, maybe you want to look at Isaiah 54, 5. And I just picked out a few of these. Isaiah 54, 5 says, um, For your maker, talking to Israel, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. So there's that reference to and that metaphor of in the Old Testament of God our Redeemer being our husband. Uh, Look at Jeremiah 31. Very uh, familiar passages um, talking about 
God's covenant with His people using marriage covenantal language uh, in that context. Look at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. It says, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. But there's that reference uh, in verse 32, uh, though I was a husband to them. Um, You're familiar with the book of uh, Hosea, Um, just um, just a rich picture of God's covenant love as he marries his people and he refuses to to relent in his love for them and commitment to them as, as, um, as Hosea does with his wife Gomer. Uh, Romans 7 is another place where you, where you see this being played out um, as, as, uh, as uh, those who are outside of Christ. We are in, in a marriage relationship to the law. But in Christ, we die. And so we die to the demands of the law. We are made alive in Christ now so that we can live according to the commands of the law. Um, Paul uses marriage language there. Um, Ephesians uh, 5, 22 through 33. Again, familiar verses. Uh, Paul gets to the end of his discussion about marriage. And guess what he does? He says, I'm talking about the relationship between a husband and wife, but I also want you to know I'm talking about a, a, prime, a more primary marriage than the relationship between a husband and wife. I'm talking about your relationship, your marriage to Christ. There in verse 32. Um, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So even in a passage where he's talking about relationships between husbands and wives... Paul can't help but emphasize the primary relationship, that vertical orientation in verse 32, which focuses on our marriage with Christ um, and we as his his bride. And then um, Revelation 19. Just read a couple of these. Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9. Um, says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So here is, here is a bride that's, that's been redeemed, and through, through the course of... Uh, of trial and tribulation, evidenced um, righteousness, and uh, and now is is standing at that that wonderful place where um, they rejoice before the wedding of the Lamb. So there's this wedding imagery that uh, is at the the consummation of all things, and that that's also talked about in uh, Revelation 21.
Okay. So just uh, just a few passages that that pick up on the marriage metaphor. Look at um, look at one more. Second Corinthians eleven one through three. And look how Paul talks about these uh, these Corinthian Christians. You know, uh, a troubled bunch. Um, he says, uh, I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I may... I might present you as a pure virgin to him, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So here he's using that marriage imagery to talk about uh, devotion, purity, uh, fleeing from idolatry. Um, Again, just... uh, a rich understanding of what it means to be in a relationship with the living God. Um, let me let me uh, look at this third point. Um, here's and and this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna begin to I'm gonna begin to land here and get real practical with you. Okay, this, that's the that's the biblical uh, theological stuff that that's so rich and important. Um, why, why do I like the marriage metaphor? Well, here's, here's why I like the marriage metaphor. I think it's tightly connected to covenantal language. But when I, think about, when I think about marriage, I think about marriage along three lines. There's a legal dimension to marriage. There's a personal dimension to marriage. And then there's what I'm going to refer to as an aesthetic dimension in marriage. Um, my wife's here by the way, in the back, and she'll laugh. But when, uh, when we got married, um, I had been in, in seminary here at Westminster for four years. She didn't know it, but I had to borrow money. Yeah, I know none of you have to do that. You're all independently wealthy. But I had to borrow money from our wonderful government. And uh, when I graduated, I, I probably, and this, is, this may look like peanuts to you guys, but it was about $20,000 in debt. And my wife found out about it months before we were to get married. Now, I, I wouldn't advise doing that, you know. So, um, uh, you know, if your husbands hear this and think, oh, it's, it's okay to keep personal secrets like that from my wife, uh, that's not what I'm advising. But here's what happened when we got married. All right? It was great for me, but it wasn't for my wife. We got married. We said, I do. There was this new legal arrangement, and guess what? What was mine became hers and what was hers became mine. All right, she got my $20,000 debt, and I got some of, you know, she had savings, she had been working, um, and I got some of that, <laughs> you know, before it disappeared quickly. Um, we even had to use some of her money to go on our honeymoon once we got married. Isn't that terrible? Um, but th- there's a legal dimension to marriage, and that's similar to our relationship with Christ. All right? He brings nothing but assets. We bring nothing but liabilities. But there's that legal transfer. And marriage pick, you know, captures that, that wonderful transaction where all of my liabilities Christ takes. Um, they're, they're given to him. 
He atones for all of those liabilities, all of my sins um, and, and shortcomings. And what's His becomes mine. All of His glory and righteousness becomes mine. And the Father treats me, and this is amazing, isn't it? Treats me in the same way that He treats His own dear Son. Um, now, that's pretty incredible in and of itself. But marriage, I think, captures another dimension to what it means to be in a relationship with God. There's a personal dimension. All right, when God talks about being in covenant with His people, He's saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. You never heard anything like that in ancient Near Eastern religions. Um, there, there wasn't that kind of intimacy and this is a pretty radical thing in the Old Testament, and it just gets blown beyond proportion in the New Testament. And, and we enter into a relationship with the living God that the only way that you can come close to describing how personal it is is to take the most personal relationship between two human beings, marriage, and say it's kind of like that. Um, so our relationship with God has a legal foundation Our relationship with God is intensely personal. The Christian life is not primarily about about negation, stop doing this, start doing that, but it's more about relationship and within the context of relationship, your your desires are my wishes and, um, and I want to do what pleases you. But there's this third dimension to human marriage that I think is an important dimension that we often leave out. Reform folk tend to really get the legal part, you know, that imputation of sin and imputation of righteousness. Um, maybe if we're really savvy, we get some of the personal stuff, you know, but it's, it's, not, it's not real categorical and rational, and so we're like, you know, that's for, that's for other people. Um, here's the piece that we miss. It, Entirely, I think, oftentimes, and it's the aesthetic dimension to marriage. When you get married to somebody, I mean, at the end of the day, one of the dimensions that's going on there is that you find the person beautiful. They're, they're aesthetically pleasing to you. Um, and uh, there is an aesthetic dimension in this marriage metaphor in our relationship with God that I think is utterly important because it gets at the heart of reorienting the loves. Uh, How in the world are we going to get reoriented vertically? Um, It's going to be as our hearts are uh, captivated by the one that we worship. Um, Here's here's the way the psalmist puts it. Psalm 34.8, did I put this in your outline? Psalm 34, 8. Here's how the psalmist talks about worship. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste. That's, that's aesthetic, right? See. It doesn't, doesn't talk about uh, primarily at this point, even though it's part of being in a relationship with God, it doesn't say cognitively no. Right? It's... It's not less than that, but it's much more than that. Taste and see. You're tapping into different senses at that point. Uh, how about um, Psalm 27, 4? 
This is what the psalmist says. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And listen to this. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's that's, that's strange language. And yet it's, it's very rich biblical language that I think is consistent with a marriage metaphor when we think about a relationship with God. There's a legal foundation. There's a rich, intense, personal dimension of our relationship with God. But there's this aesthetic dimension that moves in the direction of, of genuine worship. And um, what I think is that this, this legal, personal, and aesthetic dimension that I think is a part of the marriage metaphor in terms of relationship with God is the dynamic that drives a lifestyle of repentance and faith as the Holy Spirit continues to apply what is ours in Christ to our lives. Um, let, me, let me read the quote from Robert Latham here under point three. Listen to what he says. He says, um, uh, see point three, how does this particular metaphor assist us in growth and grace? This is indeed the crucial point as far as we are existentially concerned. Union with Christ at the end of the day has to, has to play itself out in our moment-by-moment existence. That's what he's saying. As Calvin argued, all that Christ has done is of no avail to us until the Holy Spirit applies it to us personally. This he does through faith, which Calvin goes on to say is the principal work of the Holy Spirit. Thus, union with Christ is brought into effect in our, in our own experience through faith and its inseparable companion, repentance. Where union with Christ surfaces in our experience, repentance and faith are always present. In that sense, without repentance and faith, union with Christ does not exist. The Holy Spirit is the author of faith. Repentance is a gift granted to us by the grace of God. Union with Christ is brought about in our life experience by the Spirit's work. The Spirit Himself is sent by the risen Christ. Consequently, Christ unites himself to us by the Spirit and in so doing enables us to entrust ourselves into his hands. Um, so this, this dynamic of repentance and faith. Let me, um, let me unpack that and then I'll finish with an illustration from my own life. All right? what, what's going on in repentance and faith? Here's what's going on in repentance. Repentance is you... Not just being keen to behavior that you need to stop doing or behavior that you should be doing. But it's, it's I think first before that, it's giving attention to what you tend to live for besides the living God. In, in other words, to put it along the lines of this marriage metaphor, what do you find beautiful? What, what makes you feel beautiful? What, what captivates your attention? What, what dominates your imagination? It's either the beauty of the Lord and gazing upon Him, or it's something else. And what does is, what is the writer of Romans say in Romans one twenty five? It's going to be something in creation. You're going to turn the commands upside down on their head and you're, you're going to make something in creation 
more beautiful to you than the living God. And repentance is saying, what is that? What do I tend to make more beautiful than the living God in my life? Okay, and it can be, it can be tangible stuff, you know, stuff that you can touch and taste and feel, experience. Uh, it might be money, it might be cars, it might be homes, but it can be intangible stuff as well. Success, approval, acceptance, power, comfort, um, all those intangible blessings that we are to rightfully enjoy, but when they usurp the living God, they become things that we give ourselves to. They become lovers that we put ourselves into the arms of. Um, And so repentance is identifying the objects of false worship uh, and turning from them. It's not just, I need, to, I need to stop doing this behavior and start doing this behavior. It involves that. Okay? James says, wash your hands, but he also says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. The reason you're sinning is because you're double-minded in your hearts, in your souls, and you need to be purified. You need a, a vertical reorientation, so to speak. Now, what is faith? Faith is seeing the glory and beauty of Christ and turning to Him. And you've got to have both. So, so the, the Christian life, the dynamic for change, if we're thinking about union with Christ and we, we push, push ahead with this metaphor of marriage, uh, reminds me there's a legal foundation. I'm safe and secure. I can, I can honestly own what I tend to love besides the living God, what I tend to treasure, what I tend to worship. Because I don't have to fight with him to get free. I'm already free. I'm already accepted, so I can put my stuff on the table. I can begin to engage with, with Father, Son, and Spirit at a personal level, and I can begin to own the stuff that tends to usurp Him in my life. But then faith says, and now I want to begin to be recaptivated, recaptured by His beauty. And so I've got to, I've got to put these wonderful, rich images of beauty that uh, that reveal His grace and His glory to me before me. Um, what does this look like in daily life? This dynamic of re- repentance and faith. And I'm going to primarily talk about the vertical reorientation that takes place. Um, but I can't, I can't do it with this illustration without it involving relationship. Okay? But I, t- I want to focus on the vertical. Uh, I'll, I'll play out some of the horizontal implications. And then next week what we'll do is we'll just look at, we'll look at one interpersonal issue conflict in James 4. And we'll just talk about that, the, the horizontal aspect. And I'll, I'll mention something about that later. But look at, look at Calvin's quote there on point four. What, what does this marriage metaphor, this legal, personal, aesthetic seeing the beauty of the Lord, faith and repentance, dynamic, look like in daily life. Listen to what Calvin says. By the way, if you, I, I can't find anything better on union with Christ than book three of the Institutes by Calvin. All right, I, I, you know, Redemption Accomplished Implied by Murray, all the, all the great works, 
book three of the, of the Institutes is all about how we become recipients of the grace of Christ. Um, here's what he says. This is uh, at a certain point in book three. He says, We have given the first place to the doctrine in which our religion is contained. He's talking about the gospel, union with Christ, the, uh, the receiving of grace um, by faith through the work of the Spirit, since our salvation begins with it. But it must enter into our hearts and pass along to our daily living. All right, this is Calvin now. This knowledge must pass into our hearts and then it must translate into our daily lives and so transform us into itself that it may not be unfruitful for us. The gospel's efficacy ought to penetrate the inmost affections. There's that aesthetic dimension, that worship dimension. Uh, affections. It's, the, it's the, at the core of who we are, what we live for, what we worship. It's got to penetrate the inmost affections of the heart, take its seat in the soul, and affect the whole man a hundred times more deeply than the cold exhortations of the philosophers. Okay? All right, let's do this with me because I'm going I'm to talk about myself here at the end. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First uh, Corinthians chapter one. Look what um, look what Paul says in verses thirty and thirty one. Says uh, it is because of him Jesus that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. So Paul says Jesus is the wisdom from God. And he says, Jesus is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, and here's worship language, let him who worships or boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, let me, let me say something about wisdom here. When, when we think about the word wisdom, we, we tend to have um, a, a Greek read on that word. But when you, when you understand the, the word wisdom biblically, particularly in its Old Testament context, the word wisdom really means beauty. It's skill that's employed that, that brings forth something beautiful. When, um, when Aholiab and Bezalel in the Old Testament are given the spirit to build the tabernacle, it says they were given wisdom. Literally, they were given skill. So what were Bezalel and Aholiab able to do? They were able to take uh, all these different uh, woods and jewels and... Uh, different fabrics, and fashion them all together with great skill so that what? Something beautiful emerged. All right? Uh, the tabernacle. It was, a, it, was a, it was an artist's dream. It was beautiful. Um, when, when you apply wisdom to what it looks like to live the Christian life, basically what wisdom is is the ability to apply the gospel to your life as you apply the scriptures so that what? Something beautiful emerges. A new lifestyle that gives glory to God. Paul says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And he says even more explicitly that the cross is the ultimate expression of God's wisdom. What does he mean by that? He says that at the cross, God in this amazing, skillful way 
brought things together in such a way that something beautiful emerged. Now, it, it tore asunder the second person of the Godhead, right? But what emerged is God's, is God's holiness and His righteousness and His mercy and His grace meet at the cross and crush Jesus. What emerges? Our redemption. Our salvation. And so Paul's saying, Jesus is, is the wisdom of God. Here, you want to see God's beauty? It's, it's at the cross. And, and look what he says um, in chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. He's talking about the Corinthians needing wisdom, needing this kind of wisdom. And he says, um, verse 7, No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. So now it's being revealed, this wisdom. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, listen, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. But God has revealed it to us by His Spirit. Um, See, that's, that's aesthetic language. Seeing, hearing, understanding what? This inconceivable, beautiful thing called our redemption that's, that's brought to pass in our lives by what Jesus has done on the cross. Okay. Here's what it looks like in daily life. Okay. And this is just one place. Um, This this happens pretty regularly in our home, but um, I was frustrated and angry with somebody in my family. And it happened to be one of my children. And um, I was agitated because I thought that this particular child of mine, whom I will attempt to remain nameless, um, came in the house and was disrespectful towards me. Now, what's kicking in at that moment? Um, This this secondary issue of, I'm her father. Um, She is supposed to respect me. I even have Bible verses, you know, that back it up. Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. Got all kinds of, you know, biblical stuff in my arsenal. And, and what's happening, though, is just in that quick kind of moment when we pass and I sense her disrespect, I'm being tempted to make my child's respect for me primary and God's love for me secondary. So at that moment, what's beautiful to me? What makes my life sing? A child who obeys and respects her parent. And I'm not getting it. Okay. She stomps up the stairs. And um, I'm thinking, where did she learn how to stomp up the stairs like that? So I proceed to follow her. And guess what I'm doing? I'm stomping up the stairs. I think, oh, well, maybe this is where she got it. 
But I'm stomping up the first flight of stairs. She's already made it to the, the, the third floor. I'm stomping up the first flight of stairs. And by God's grace, by the work of the Spirit, I'm seeing God's wisdom for me in Christ. And, and this, is, this is kind of what it's sounding like, all right? I, I don't, I'm just kind of trying to play it out as concretely as, um, as I can. Um, Tim, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Tim, no, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. So something like that's going on. And I'm beginning to understand the cross and the gospel, and I'm being reminded of, in this split moment, hey, I'm in a relationship with the living God. There's a solid legal foundation. He's, he's my personal redeemer. I can cry out to him right now. I'm, I'm interacting with him. Ever so poorly, but I'm interacting with him as I'm marching up that first flight of stairs. And I'm beginning to see his beauty. And what's happening is this, this radical vertical orient, reorientation is taking place. So I'm moving away from respect is what I need. Respect is, is just gorgeous. A child's respect for her parent, that, that's, that's what I've got to have. And I'm moving from that... And I'm saying, no, what I really need is I need to see Christ. Now, respect doesn't get pushed off to the side. And I don't say, well, those commands don't matter. But what happens is they get, they get demoted, okay? And they're secondary. And Christ begins to get promoted. So when I hit the second flight of stairs, guess what? This is how tangible and concrete repentance and faith is. The way my feet are hitting the, the treads on the way up that second flight are different. All right, rather than stomping, I'm, I'm now stepping. And, and I'm calming down. That's the impact of the gospel. If it doesn't translate into daily life, then what good is it? Um, we sin in very specific concrete ways. Redemption, salvation, growth and grace has got to be that specific and concrete. Um, so I, I get up to the final flight of stairs, and right before I got up there, the door slammed. And I go to the door that's just been slammed, and because by God's grace I've been rescued. Rather than, again, here's practical grace at that moment, rather than you know, just hammering away at the door with my fist like this, which is what I would do, you know, and just rapping on the door as hard as I can. The gospel enables me to turn my wrist and just tap on the door, okay? And I say, I'd like to talk with you. No, I don't want to talk with you right now. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Tempted again, right? Say, that's all right. When you're ready, let's talk. I love you. Um, what was going on? Jesus is my wisdom. He's my righteousness. He's my holiness. He's my redemption. Jesus, you're my righteousness. I'm, I'm, I'm righteous in you, not in whether or not I'm a successful or unsuccessful parent. 
Jesus is my holiness. I've got the Spirit. I've been regenerated. I have a new heart. I don't have to give in to this impulse. Um, There's this optimistic power. The Spirit is alive. He's working in me. I'm a partaker of the divine nature. Jesus is my redemption. One day in the future, I'm going to rule and reign with Him. Why in the world... Do I, am I so convinced that I've got to rule and reign right now over my daughter in this moment? All right? Um, there's a legal, personal, aesthetic dimension. Repentance and faith being driven by that. Changing the way I walk up the stairs. Changing the way I do whatever I do on the door. Um... That's, that's union with Christ. Okay? That's union with Christ. If it doesn't go there, then we haven't understood union with Christ. Okay? Um, let, let me pray for us, and then, I don't know, do you guys break, or do you have questions right away? No, we'll be ready for questions. Okay. All right. Father, um, I've just described a, a particular incident that happened, uh, as I think about it, it was probably a year and a half ago, and there have been lots of failures. There's been lots of agitation and irritation in my life since then. And so uh, I, I admit and confess that I've still got a long ways to go. But I thank you that your love for me is relentless, that you are uh, wed to me, and that you will see what you've begun to completion. And uh, you're going to continue to show me and allow me to see my sin, but you're also going to allow me to enjoy uh, seasons and moments where I repent and believe and move in very different and surprising and godly ways that were not for you. Um, It just wouldn't happen. So I thank you for that. And um, Father, I pray um, for these wives and for the husbands that are represented, um, that, Lord, you would, you would enable them and me and my wife to bring this beautiful and wonderful doctrine of union with Christ uh, to bear at that level in, um, in our daily relationships and our daily living. Would you do that uh, for Jesus' sake? Amen.